Go ahead and meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, is where we're going to be <clears throat> together this morning, 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, and as you turn there, I want to uh, share with you, I'm not going to walk over here because I don't want to get wet. Um, uh, uh, I want to share with you uh, a parenting failure uh, that I, um, I did not even know I had made. I discovered it this summer. Uh, this summer, our family took a little road trip uh, to Louisville, Kentucky. I was there for a class, but then uh, my wife and kids and my parents went, and they did some uh, some sightseeing and some things. And then uh, while I was in class, and in the evenings, we would come back together, we'd eat dinner, hang out, all of those fun things. And one night, we were back. We had gotten an Airbnb. Uh, we are uh, we had finished eating dinner, and my boys had brought uh, a deck of playing cards, uh, and uh, they they wanted to play a card game. I said, well, how much money did you bring, boys, right? <laughs> uh, uh, I said, all right, you want to play a card game? Let's, let's play Go Fish. And to my great horror, my boys did not know how to play Go Fish. And so I asked them, I said, what is your mother teaching you when I'm not around, all right? Um, and so we, uh, we get the cards out, and we, we deal out these cards. We start playing Go Fish. I'm teaching them how to do it, and we get to the end of the game. And I realized that we have cards left over. That is, we have cards that do not have a match, right? They, uh, they, they aren't part of a pair. And what quickly became apparent was that we were missing part of the deck. I think what it is, my, my boys like to play 52-card pickup, but they only pick up 49, you know, kind of one of those situations. So we get to the end, and they say, Daddy, what do we do? I said, well, I think when cards are left over, that means Daddy wins, right? I, I, don't, I, I don't know what else. I don't make the rules. I just follow them. Right, but, but we learned a, a valuable lesson that day, that, that evening, that it takes an entire deck of cards to finish any card game. Right, there, there's no card game where, you say, well, you know, these three cards, we don't really need them, or those four cards. You can, no, you need the entire deck of cards to play the game. And I think that illustrates a, a valuable lesson for us. And I think this is what Paul is showing us here in 2 Corinthians 8, where we're going to be this morning. And that, that principle is this, is that it takes all of God's people to accomplish all of God's work. Uh, we could put it another way like this, that God invites all of his people into all of his work. That, that God doesn't do anything in the world and say, I, I just need this part of my people. Right, I, I just need this piece. I, I just need that piece. Or he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, this is the great commission. This is my will for my people except for you. No, he, he invites all of us to play some role in his work in the world. And understand that that's an invitation. That's an opportunity that we have to be used by our God. So look with me here at 2 Corinthians 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the, the verses on the screen for you. You can follow along with us there. And this morning, we're really, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 15. But I think it's helpful for us to get the full context of what Paul is saying from where we were last week and where we'll be this week. So we're going to actually start in verse 8, and we're going to read down to verse 15. But let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in 2 Corinthians 8. Starting in verse 8, the Spirit says to us this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, 
but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Sunday mornings. Lord, thank you for Sunday mornings that we can come in and we can gather and we can sing your praise and we can study your word. And Father, I, I pray that you would, you would illumine your word for us this morning so that we could see wonderful truths. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us through it. And Lord, even as we gather in here this morning in relative peace, Father, we understand that there are multitudes gathering around the world today to worship you who do not gather in peace. Father, we, we recognize that that around the world, even today, that there, there are some believers and unbelievers who, who are gathering in, in the middle of a war. So, Father, we, we pray that you would use what's happening in the world. We, you would use what's happening in Israel uh, for your glory, Father, that you would protect the innocent. And, Father, that you would use this in some way to, to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we pray that you would be glorified in ways that only you can be. And Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to focus our time on verses 12 through 15 here in 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to see this, this truth that God invites all of his people into all of his work. And the invitation that Paul is talking about here is this invitation to give. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see a few ways that Paul invites us to give, this invitation to generosity, the ways that he invites us to be generous. And the first way is this, is that we're to give according to what we have. We give according to what you have. Now, we picked up in the middle of this paragraph, we read the entire paragraph. If we were to go back to the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians 8, what we would find is we would find Paul encouraging the Corinthians to give. But what he does in 2 Corinthians 8, kind of 1 through 11, is he gives an example and he gives an encouragement on why they should give. So first he gives this example. And this example is the Macedonians. The Macedonians are a small church. They're a struggling church. And yet they were excited about being able to give the, the limited resources they had uh, to support the struggling church in Jerusalem, which is what this offering is going towards. And so he gives the, the church at Corinth this example of why they should give. But then he's going to give them an encouragement to give. And that encouragement to give is to give because Jesus gave. Because Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, spiritually speaking, is what Paul's talking about here. And so now he's going to get a little more practical, and he's going to start to apply what's going on. And he says, first here, to give according to what you have. Look at verse 12. He says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, he returns to this idea of readiness. If you were to go back to verse 11, he's going to use that phrase. He'll use it a couple other times earlier in 2 Corinthians 8. But he, he comes back to this idea of readiness. 
And he's reminding the Corinthians, hey, you were ready to give. See, Paul had come to the Corinthians a year before. He had written them a letter a year before, and what he had heard back was that the Corinthians, they were ready. They were excited about being able to take part in this offering, in this giving, in this act of grace, this act of generosity to the Jerusalem Christians. But then something changed. They lost their motivation. And so what Paul had said earlier in this passage is to let the gospel be your motivation. And so now he, he says here in verse 12, Look, if the readiness is there, and I, I love this, this picture of readiness, it's, it's this picture of a spring-loaded posture. It's the picture of, of a sprinter who is in the blocks, who has heard ready and who has heard set, and now is just waiting to hear go. He says, look, if that kind of readiness is there, then give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. In verse 9, he'd encourage them to be fueled by the gospel. And here, once again, he's encouraging them. Look, God has given you what you need to be obedient. Give according to what you have, not, not what you don't have. Now, there are apparently some hesitations or some misunderstandings in the church at Corinth about giving. And in the rest of verse 12, Paul's going to try to clarify some of this. He's not trying to pressure people to give what they do not have or cannot afford. We, we read just a minute ago where Paul says, I don't say this as a command. He says, I'm, I'm giving you my judgment. I'm, I'm applying the gospel to you. He's not trying to pressure people to give. Instead, he's, he's calling them to give according to what you have. And look at verse 12. He says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. Now, maybe when you hear that word acceptable, you hear it as kind of like a, a lowest common denominator, like kind of the, the least that you give. It kind of like maybe husbands, you can identify with me. Maybe you've come home from work before and you, you ask your wife, hey, how was your day? And she says, it was fine. And you know, that's a trap, right? It was not fine, right? Something else is going, I need to ask some more questions. Maybe when we read here, Paul saying that if you give according to what you have, it's acceptable. What we hear is, well, that means it's fine. That means it's just okay. That means it's minimum. That, that means it's what I do. That's not what that means here at all. In fact, this, this word acceptable, it's used to speak of what is fully satisfying to God. So when we give according to what we have, we are pleasing our God. Right? That he, he's not judging us based on what we don't have. No, he's invited us to to play a part in the work that he's doing in the world. And he said, look, do it according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Because when you do it according to what you have, then God is pleased. See, Paul is looking for the Corinthians to, to give to meet the needs of other Christians. It, it was going to support other believers. But what Paul wants us and what he wanted the Corinthians to understand is that the first party involved in our giving always is God. The first party in our giving, it's not, it's not you, it's not me. It's not a church, it's not a ministry, it is God. Our giving isn't first and foremost about us or our church. Our giving is first and foremost an act of worship where we confess that our God is greater than anything we have and he's worthy of all that we have. That he is worthy of our worship and being worthy of our worship is not relegated to the way that we sing. 
It's not relegated to coming in on Sunday mornings and, and listening to a sermon and listening to singing and going out. It's not, it's not just relegated to reading your Bible in the morning. No, worship is all of life. Right? Worship is that thing that you do. It's that thing that I do. It's what we were created to do. And whenever we give, fueled by the gospel, we are engaging in worship. Now, Paul understands what, what common sense tells us, that you cannot give what you do not have. And so what he's saying, he's saying, look, the Lord doesn't love most those who give the most. In fact, God is not concerned with who gives the most and who gives the least. His, his concern is not the quantity of the gift. His concern is the quality of the heart. See, God, God's not going after your money. He's going after your heart. But here's the truth. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. He's going after your heart. He, he doesn't want your money. Get this. God doesn't need your money. Right? God, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got more money than me, you, and Jeff Bezos combined. Right? Like he, he does not need our money. But he wants our hearts. He, he wants you to know him and to be known by him. He wants you to love him and to be loved by him. He, he doesn't need our money. He, he wants our hearts. See, God is going to accomplish his work in this world with or without us. He's not sitting in heaven wondering, am I going to be able to do this? Are they going to get on board? No, God's going to accomplish his work with or without us. But the amazing thing is, is that he invites us to play a part. He, he invites us to be used by him to impact eternity, to impact the world for the good of our neighbors and the nations and for his glory. And so here he, he invites us, he calls us, he says, look, give according to what you have. Next he says this, he says, give while you can. Now this encouragement, it, it takes a new turn here in verses 13 and 14. And he moves from this idea of readiness to this idea of fairness. Look at verse 13. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. God has not only invited them into his work, but he's made a way for them to participate. And so here in verse 13, but Paul doesn't want Corinthians to be unfairly burdened by their giving to other believers. Instead, he wants them to see how they've been blessed and then respond accordingly. That's what God's inviting us to do, to recognize the ways that we have been blessed and then to respond to that blessing accordingly. Now, Paul's doing something really important here in this entire paragraph. What he's doing is he's drawing a line. He's finding the middle ground between two really bad errors. So the first error, the, the first wrong way of thinking about this, uh, we saw last week, and it's this, this error of what we might call stinginess where it's the worldview where generosity is foreign and where selfishness rules your heart. See, the, the problem with stinginess is that Jesus was generous. 
Jesus was radically generous. And if we are going to take his name, if we're going to take his righteousness, if we're going to be called his people, then what that means is that we should look more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. We should look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world around us, which means that we should be radically and ruthlessly committed to generosity. So he's He's protecting us from the error on one side, which is stinginess, but then there's a second error that is just as dangerous, and it's this. It's fanaticism that is really just legalism dressed up. So this danger is where we abandon other responsibilities and we give out of money or out of things that we do not have so that we can earn something from God and so that we can earn something from other people. If you need a picture of this, Think about the Pharisees, right? This is what the Pharisees were guilty of. The the Pharisees, they wanted everyone to know that they tithed, right? There's a a story in the Gospels where the the Pharisees, they say we tithe the tenth of our mint and we we tithe the tenth of our cumin. And in Luke 18, there's a a, a Pharisee, he, he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I tithe and I pray. They wanted everyone to know that they give. And what Jesus says is, look, you might give a tithe, you might give a a tenth, you might give a percentage of whatever you give, but it's as if you haven't given. Because what about honoring your father and your mother? Right, that you you have failed to keep the law Because you've misunderstood the law, is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And here, what Paul is saying to us is, he's saying, look, gospel-fueled giving is the way. And gospel-fueled giving is giving that is committed to radical generosity. But it's also giving that is committed and given according to what you have. Not according to what you don't have, right? It's, It's given according to to the resources that you have been given. So Paul says, instead of burdening themselves by giving what they don't have, he invites them to give out of their abundance while they have, to, while they have it to give. But he says, understand this, this is not a one-sided relationship. In fact, in verse 14, he says that, that giving meets the giver's need as well as the recipient. Well, how does our giving meet our need I think Dane Ortland is helpful here. He says this. He says, giving to others loosens our heart's false sense of security and floats us further up and further into an experience of the giving heart of God. So whenever we give, we experience God's grace. Not only as we are a means of God's grace, but also as we we experience his grace at work in us. And so Paul's saying, he said, look, I'm, I'm not calling you, I'm not inviting you to give out of what you don't have, but I'm, I'm inviting you to give according to what you do have. I'm, I'm inviting you to give according to the abundance that you have. Now, maybe, maybe some of us feel like I don't have any abundance to give. Well, I wonder, could it be that We don't have an abundance to give because we spend our abundance, we spend our money on things that we don't realize. See, the the average Starbucks customer spends $2,275 a year on Starbucks. 
I know some people, I think it's like 5,000, right? Like, uh, uh, man, I know some people who drink a lot of pumpkin spice lattes in two months. So the average Starbucks customer spends $2,275 a year on Starbucks. Now speaking, this is national average. This isn't our church. This is national average. 54% of average church attenders give nothing to their church. The next 23% give less than $1,000 a year. That means that if national average is that 73% of church attenders give $1,000 or less a year to their church, but probably spend more than $2,000 a year on Starbucks. Attenders that do give, typically the average, they give 2.5% of their income. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. For many, that $1,000 a year, that 2.5%, that is a great sacrifice. And I want you to know this, the Lord is pleased by that. Right, the, the Lord finds that acceptable. He is fully satisfied and fully pleased. But for others of us, could we be spending our abundance on things that don't matter without realizing it? We think about radical generosity. Maybe when you hear radical generosity, you think radical generosity means some kind of huge giving or some kind of this or that. What the statistics tell us is that for the average American church attender, radical generosity means giving more than $2,000 a year. I think we would do well to heed Paul's point to give while we have the opportunity as the Lord leads. I said this last week, and I think it's worth repeating here that God has given you everything you need to be 100% obedient to him right now. He, he's given you all of the grace that you need to say no to sin. Like the Bible says that, that there's always a way of escape from sin. He, he's given you everything you need to be the husband or the wife that you need to be. He's given, he's given you everything you need to be the mom or the dad, to be the son or the daughter, to be the brother or the sister, the aunt or the uncle, the grandma or the grandpa. And he has given you everything you need to be to be as generous as he has called you to be to be as generous as he has called us to be. And to understand that the, the Lord's not asking us, he, he, he's not inviting us to do something that is impossible. He's not inviting us to do something that we cannot do. Instead, he said that, that what he is calling us to do, he has given us the grace to do it. And so as we, we look at this passage, we see we're to give according to what we have, and we give while we can. And then finally, we give trusting God. We give trusting God. But Paul ends the argument of this paragraph in an interesting way. He, he goes to a familiar Old Testament story to illustrate his point. So look at verse 15. He says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and who gathered little had no lack. Now that first phrase in verse 15, as it is written, whenever you read that in the New Testament, you can guarantee that what's about to happen is there's either going to be a direct quote from the Old Testament or there's going to be an allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, here, what's happening is Paul is going to directly quote from the middle of Exodus 16, verse 18. He, he takes us there to the Old Testament. He pulls this quote, and this is right in the middle of the scene where the Lord is providing manna from heaven for Israel. He has delivered Israel from Egypt. He has made manna rain down on them. Manna was this sweet bread. 
I don't know this for sure. I think it was probably like Krispy Kreme, but I'm not positive, right? I'm, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. But what he does is he provides this manna for his people. So they would wake up in the morning and they would look out and just think about like Krispy Kreme donuts raining, right? Like, oh, it's heaven. Uh, they, 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 they find this, this manna that has just covered the ground. And the Lord commands them with this. He says that each family is to take one omer of manna per person of their household. So uh, an omer was about two liters. So they were to gather two liters for their family and, or per person in their family. And, and that, would, that would take care of them for the day. Now, God didn't say gather enough for the week. He didn't say gather enough for two days or for three days. He said, gather enough for the day. Except the day before the Sabbath, then you gathered for two days. But he said, you, you gather enough for the day. And then what happened was, you can read the story, and Paul quotes it here, is that those who, who gathered what looked to be too much, they had nothing left over. And then those who, who seemingly gathered little, they didn't lack anything. But those who tried to hoard the, the manna, the, those who tried to take much more than they needed just in case, just in case the manna didn't come the next day, well, they would wake up the next morning to find that what they had hoarded had gone bad and was filled with worms. See, here in verse 15, Paul's illustrating a point. Those who trust God never lack anything. Right, those who trust God will have their needs met. Now, it might not look the way you think it does. It, it might not look the way you think it should. But those who trust God will have their needs met. So you understand this. Generosity does not threaten your flourishing and your prospering, but it secures it. That's what Paul is saying here. The way to be fulfilled in life is not to gather all that you can and hoard it for yourself. But the way to be fulfilled in life is to give in a way that trusts God. But what stands in the way of our generosity? Why do we struggle to be generous? Well, I think that the, the fallen condition focus here is that we trust ourselves more than we trust our God. We want to wait till we have more money. We want to wait till we feel more secure. We want to wait to see what happens, and then we'll be generous. Right, man, if I just had more, then, then I could be generous. I read an article this week about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, one of the richest men, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. And Jeff Bezos, uh, he just bought a new mansion. Now, what's interesting about this new mansion that he bought is it's right next to a mansion that he bought over the summer. It, it, gets, it gets more interesting. So this, this new mansion that he bought, he paid $79 million for. It sits next to uh, another mansion that he bought for $68 million. This, the old mansion only had three bedrooms. What a ripoff, right? Uh, the, the new mansion has seven bedrooms obviously needed here's here's what i question though the new mansion has seven bedrooms but it has 14 bathrooms who needs two times as many bathrooms as you have bedrooms <laughs> like i just 
I don't, I don't get it. Maybe you can enlighten me. But I don't really care either, so I don't, don't enlighten me. Um, <clears throat> if you feel the need to send an email, uh, you can send it to read at gocentralchurch.wedontcare. Um, now, maybe, maybe we look at Bezos. We look at this just embarrassingly wealthy man. We think, man, if, if I had money like Jeff Bezos, I would be ridiculously generous. You give me $2 billion, I'll give a billion away. Right? I'll, 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 just, I'll just keep $1 billion. Or we think that if we had his money, then radical generosity would be easy, but I want to remind you of the words of the great philosopher, the notorious B.I.G., Mo money, mo problems, right? <laughs> See, understand this. Radical generosity takes more than money. Money doesn't make anyone generous. Radical generosity takes far more than just money. So what does it take to be radically generous? It takes a heart changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the love for his work around the world and from generation to generation. That's what Imagine, that's what this Imagine initiative is all about. It's about our church coming together because our hearts have been captivated by Jesus Christ. And that we are bought into, we are sold out for his work, not only in the world but from generation to generation. Maybe you remember a, a couple weeks ago, we introduced the Imagine Initiative, and we introduced it with Ephesians chapter 3. Let me, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. By God's grace, we are a multi-generational multiplying church. You heard Miss Birdie say that a church with babies is a church that is alive. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church that doesn't have any babies, but it's sad. It's eerie. But by God's grace, we're a church full of babies and kindergartners and first graders and second graders and third graders and seventh graders and eighth graders and college students. We're a church full of new parents, church full of young families, a church full of parents with teenagers and with empty nesters. We're a church full of the middle age and a little older than the middle age, we're a church full of senior adults. We're a church that is fulfilling this Ephesians 3 prayer that Jesus would be glorified throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right? That we are an example of God keeping his word to his people. But what happens is, if we're not careful, that we will assume that the gospel is going to go to the next generation. And when we assume that the gospel is going to go, here's what happens. We lose the gospel. We lose a generation. If you, if you need an example of this, I would encourage you to look at the UK. 
They're a generation ahead of us. Right? They assumed, and then they lost a generation. They lost the gospel. We as a church have to be committed to not assuming that the gospel is just going to go. Right? We as a church, we get to be committed to carrying the gospel to the next generation. That's what the Imagine Initiative is about. The Imagine Initiative is not just fixing whatever that leak is, right? The Imagine Initiative is about funding missionaries and church planners around our country and around the world. But the Imagine Initiative is also about us being wise stewards of what the Lord has given to us here so that we can make room to reach more babies. So, so that we can make room to reach more families. So, so that we can make room to, to reach more middle school students and high school students and college students and their moms and their dads and their grandmas and their grandpas and their aunts and their uncles and their neighbors. The Imagine Initiative is not about us doing this because somebody got bored and decided this is what needed to happen. The Imagine Initiative is not about us making a really pretty building or really pretty classrooms. The Imagine Initiative is about all of God's people answering the call to take ownership in all of God's work so that Jesus Christ would be magnified in the church and throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I wonder what, what, what do you think would happen if more of God's people got more sold out to this idea of being radically generous? Of being radically, responsibly generous. And I'm not just saying right here at Central. Let's just say across the United States, if we got radically, relentlessly, ruthlessly committed to the kind of generosity that Jesus has shown to us. I think if that happened, the foster care system would go away. I think if, if that happened, this epidemic we have of fatherlessness and all of these other family issues might not go away, but we can put a big old dent in it. I think if we got really serious about sacrificing not just our money, but our time and our talents, our treasures, what the Lord has given to us, we would be able to spend a whole lot less time bemoaning and complaining about what the world has come to and a whole lot more time about seeing Jesus change the world. That's what the Imagine Initiative is all about. You know, I, I don't know that I don't know that Central Church can change the world on our own. But I do think we can change Sanford. I do think that we can change Seminole County. I think we can change West Volusia County. I think we can make a big impact in Central Florida. That's what the Imagine Initiative is all about. But what happens is we, we lose our motivation. And the reason we lose our motivation 
is because we lose our grasp of the gospel. The, the only way that, that we get motivated and we see this happen isn't through rah-rah speeches or anything like that. It's through hearts that have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good and that he's worthy. And we want everyone else to see and to taste and to experience that. But for that to happen, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We've got to keep our eyes focused on the sacrifice, the, the, the generosity that he has given to us. And God in his infinite wisdom knew that that was the case. And so he made a way for us to be, uh, keep the gospel constantly on our mind. That's why we, we gather together weekly to be reminded of the, the goodness of Jesus. We, we celebrate baptisms to be reminded of the goodness of Jesus. Here in just a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate our 70th baptism since January. God's doing great things in every one of those, every one of those things, every one of those baptisms. That's a time for us to celebrate the kingdom marching forward, but also to be reminded of God's work in our own heart moment.